another edition of ABI Podcast. This is Melissa Jacoby. I'm the ABI Scholar-in-Residence for the spring 2016, and I'm also a law professor at the University of North Carolina at Chapel Hill. Today's topic is an unusual governance structure in an unusual kind of bankruptcy case. The structure is a committee of students in a Chapter 11, and the Chapter 11 case is Corinthian, which was among the largest for-profit post-secondary education companies in the United States and Canada. We're lucky to have two guests today who represented that committee of students, Scott Gautier, a partner at Robbins Kaplan in LA, a former member of ABI's board of directors, and Chris Ward, a shareholder at Polsonelli in Wilmington, Delaware, and also practice co-chair there, and currently on the ABI's board of directors. Welcome to both of you. Thank you, Moss. Good afternoon. So, Scott, let me start by asking you some about the, the context here. Uh, so federal education laws deter the filing of education bankruptcies. So it really wasn't a foregone conclusion that even a truly financially distressed education provider with no liquidity would enter bankruptcy. So how did Corinthian get into bankruptcy? Why did it file? Melissa, you know, Corinthian was done uh, as a school, as an educational institution, it had sold the schools uh, that it could. And the only way that you can effectively sell a, a private school is to have the consent of the Department of Education, because all those private schools are dependent upon receiving Title IV funds. Title IV funds are the student loans. So the loans that the students take out that allow them to afford an education if you don't have access to that Title IV funding, um, you, you don't have any revenue. That's you know almost 90% of all these private schools' revenues. So Corinthian had sold all the schools that it could. Ed was effectively blocking the sale of the remaining schools and campuses. And a company like Corinthian will often utilize Chapter 11 uh, to benefit from the automatic stay. There, If you recall, there's a lot of director and officer litigation that was going on, and there was a lot more that was threatened. And it'll utilize a formal process to dissolve the company and bring things to a close uh, and hopefully uh, extricate some of the directors and officers from litigation or at least uh, put a process in place by which uh, everything is, is funneled to conclusion. And so only where we see a private school that is out of business and done, are we are we likely to see uh, a formal bankruptcy process? So we're using bankruptcy for the other tools that are offered, as we see in many Chapter 11s, rather than a traditional reorganization, which would never have been possible here. Absolutely. It is um, completely within the Department of Education's discretion, uh, and I don't think they would ever approve um, uh, a school continuing to remain eligible for Title IV funding after it has filed for bankruptcy. Uh, the law is that uh, once you file for bankruptcy, you're no longer eligible without Ed's consent to continue to, to have access to Title IV funding. So Corinthian files. The U.S. trustee appoints an ordinary creditors committee in the case, uh, but there was a request and uh, apparently granted to have a, a special student committee. So Chris, Take us through the basis for appointing that special committee. and Who had to be convinced to make that happen? And was anyone skeptical about it? 
Well, I think the best way to start this was that the matter originally uh, came in through Scott and Robbins Kaplan, as well as public counsel, um, who had the relationship with the students. And they worked with the students prior to the bankruptcy filing and leading up to the bankruptcy um, to organize them and get a, an ad hoc committee set up of the students. Um, it was at that point that my firm in Delaware was approached uh, to be you know, local counsel, co-counsel to the committee. Um, and our role was to serve as Delaware Bankruptcy Counsel and to advise the students and Robbins Kaplan and public counsel on procedure in Delaware and to really get them familiar with our court system and our, our trustee's office. Um, now, this case was in Delaware, but th this could have been in any jurisdiction. I think one of the underestimated facts in any bankruptcy case is the uh, the ability of outside counsel to rely on local counsel um, in the jurisdiction to become familiar with bankruptcy practice and procedure in that jurisdiction. Um, you know, the Pulsinelli in particular in this case um, was needed to talk to the Office of the United States Trustee um, and make introductions uh, between all the, the students and the, the lawyers involved. And, and in any case, it's always great to have a firm with a good relationship with Chambers because getting in with Chambers and, and the court system is, uh, is the most efficient way to get the committee um, process moving. Um, what we did here was Robbins Kaplan had sent a letter to the Office of the United States Trustee requesting that the trustee form an official committee of students um, after the, uh, the official committee of unsecured creditors was formed. Um, that is typically the first step in the process to have an alternative committee formed, um, is to have it done by letter, uh, specifically requesting that the Office of the United States Trustee solicit interest in an alternative committee. Um, the trustee, by step by the bankruptcy code, automatically solicits interest of general unsecured creditors in every case, and assuming there's three interested unsecured creditors is going to form a committee. Um, we've seen a lot of instances with this ad hoc committee approach uh, requesting that the trustee form an alternative committee. I think that the largest group we've seen there is there's equity committees in several cases. Um, we've also seen some landlord committees and retiree committees. In this instance, uh, we approached a trustee about soliciting interest in a student committee. Um, after the trustee receives that request, they typically go to the debtor and the lender and other major constituencies in the case and ask them to reply as to whether a committee is needed in this particular case. Um, the trustee then makes a decision on whether to solicit the committee or not. And I think it's important to note that what the trustee does in these cases is the trustee uh, gauges interest in whether it should solicit creditors in order to serve on an alternative official committee. Um, it's not that the trustee actually forms a committee. What the trustee does is if it determines in its sole discretion, basically, if a committee is needed, it interest and it still has to receive at least three interested creditors that are willing to serve on that alternative committee. Yeah, I was going to jump in. You know, what's interesting here, um, as Chris said, you, you know, um, Robbins Kaplan and public counsel, well before Corinthian uh, filed for Chapter 11 relief, uh, public counsel is a, the nation's largest uh, pro bono law firm, and they had been approached and were working with students of Corinthian you know, the investigation of Corinthian goes back uh, even before 2007. Uh, the California Attorney General's Office has been investigating uh, the, those schools for quite some time in terms of 
um, the accusations of uh, fraud and, and misconduct related to you know the the reporting of their placement and their advertising of what their placement rates are and their post graduation salaries are something that's been going on for a really long time and as the schools were being sold and as they were closing uh, the students were becoming more vocal and we were consulted specifically for our bankruptcy advice we were asked specifically again prior to Corinthians bankruptcy whether we could help students utilize Chapter 11 uh, on an involuntary basis against Corinthian to avoid the anti-class agreements and the binding arbitration provisions that are contained in their enrollment agreements. As most bankruptcy practitioners know, Chapter 11 does not really offer a way to avoid bar binding arbitration or class waivers. However, what we noted to the students is that if Corinthian, if we could get Corinthian into a bankruptcy proceeding, which we thought was unlikely as long as they were going to continue to operate because of the Title IV issues that we just spoke about, uh, it would offer the opportunity for collective proceedings, even aside from a class action, through a class of creditors that could participate uh, in the case. So, it was we were actually trying to think of ways of getting Corinthian into an involuntary you know students don't have they didn't have undisputed claims so we had we would have to find creditors that were sympathetic to the cause but while we were discussing that and thinking about that um ironically enough Corinthian went and filed its own chapter 11 case so we knew that we wanted a student committee, that we, we'd like to see Corinthian in a bankruptcy case because there are these anti-class waivers and these mandatory arbitration provisions that made it difficult for the students to act as a class. Once they filed, um, we did the letter, but we reached out to Chris Ward in particular at Polsonelli. Um, as Chris has said, what was you know, we need local counsel in Delaware, but even if we didn't need, you know, required to have local counsel in Delaware, you want local counsel like the Polsonelli group that has the relationships with the U.S. trustee's office that knows the courts and knows the process because 1102 is a discretionary uh, uh, statute. You know, no one has to give you a committee just because you ask for it. And so it's the way that you ask for it and the way you make your arguments that was so important to us and to be able to to utilize Chris and his firm was was really key to making sure that we got a committee appointed. So Scott, you raised some interesting points about the nature of the claims that the students have. Uh, students are both debtors and creditors and of course a lot of different ways, but uh, even with respect to Corinthian, there seems to be a lot of different things the students might have wanted out of this process, whether it is money or relief uh, from student loans, the ability to finish their education. How did you prioritize those issues? Uh, did all the students, are their interests really all aligned in one in one group? There's nothing we can do, you know, as a, as a committee in a bankruptcy case um, to to satisfy a lot of the student needs, right? We, we as lawyers, both Chris and I, and, and we run into this, you know, throughout this case, as human beings, we're very sympathetic to the student's plight. And we have to, and we've had to constantly remind ourselves 
that we were the bankruptcy lawyers representing the student committee within that bankruptcy case to navigate the bankruptcy case and what was the best that we could do in that situation. I will tell you that what these students need is they need um, continuing education, even the ones that have graduated that, that you know, probably got a lot of them feel as though they received less of an education than what they were promised in terms of the equipment that they, you know, were trained on and, and the techniques and the programs, uh, both the hardware and software with which they were trained on. Some of them, many of them that I've talked to really feel as though they didn't get what they were promised in terms of a, a usable education, and that's a real problem. There's nothing we can do in the bankruptcy case that's going to solve that um, other than, you know, making the case to the government to maybe help to set up programs, uh, retraining programs that can be utilized for students. Um, there's no money in the bankruptcy estate. There are, you know, all told at the end of the day, maybe a few million dollars that can be, that was left over for creditors. We're talking about hundreds of thousands of students that were not, they didn't receive what they were promised and forced to take, on the average, something in the area of $20,000 to $40,000 worth of student loans, some more. And that, just at a conservative estimate, you're talking about 5 to $10 billion of damage claims. People that were sold something, took out a loan to pay for it, and did not receive what they were promised, and were intentionally lied to. So when a school closes, there's no money. The, the the tap is shut off, and there's a couple million dollars spread out over $10 billion in claims. There's no effective way that you're going to send money to people. Um, so the best that you can hope for um, is to um, is to, to help them get freedom from their student loan obligations. One of the things that, and this is, you know, again, was to the fact that as human beings, we'd like to solve all the problems of the world. And there's a huge student loan uh, problem in this country with the trillions of dollars of student loan debt that exists and the inability of the students to pay for it. We've got to focus on the Corinthian issue. And we've got to be, for lack of a better word, greedy on behalf of our clients. The Corinthian students sit in a different position than many other students at many other schools in terms of their student loans. These are not students that were just, you know, overcharged and they find that their educations, you know, they're un unable to pay for their overpriced educations. Um, these are these are people that were lied to and deceived and didn't receive what it was they were promised that they would receive. And so the difference being in that the Corinthian students really, we believe, should not be responsible for these obligations that were, uh, you know, garnered by by fraud and deceit. And so um, we tried to utilize the Corinthians bankruptcy case to give the students uh, some leverage with the Department of Education in terms of negotiating for uh, uh, a greater relief um, and cancellation of debt. And can you shed any light on how you did that? I know some of it must be confidential, but how did you work with the Department of Education? How did you exercise that leverage? 
Well, I will tell you that we have not been as successful as we would like to be. Department of Education has absolute discretion um, because of the way that the Title IV is set up and the Code of Federal Regulations is set up. Um, you know, there is really nothing you can do. Um, you can't sue the federal government on a mass basis to get them. There's no there's no process or, or procedure or court in place where you can just go and sue the Department of Education and force them to um, uh, cancel uh, student loans. You have to go through uh, the process, the Code of Federal Regulation, and the Department of Education is the final arbiter. What we tried to do, um, we tried to utilize the automatic stay um, to and extend that to the repayment of student loans. We tried to infringe upon uh, the Department of Education and get the bankruptcy court to infringe upon the Department of Education's uh, discretion um, in the process. And I think the bankruptcy court helped us in that regard and gave us some leverage uh, in terms of its uh, rulings uh, from the bench. And I think as the Department of Education saw that the bankruptcy court may infringe on its discretion in certain ways. It was more willing to to talk with us. The I would say that you know would have to recognize that the California Attorney General's Office that had been working on this problem since 2007 and had dedicated probably tens of millions of dollars to investigating and auditing uh, Corinthian records historically. Uh, was able to do much more than what what we were able to do in the span of you know six months, six to eight months during the case. Uh, we were happy to be able to you know lend our voice and allow some of the students to lend their voice uh, to the issues. Um, but you know to date, I would say that the the real gains with the Department of Education in terms of what they've done uh, for Corinthian students has been you know, mostly based, uh, almost entirely based on what the California Attorney General was able to do. So you're involved in an ongoing basis on this, in this case. Uh, can you tell us where things stand now and how they appear relative to where they, how they looked at the time that there was a, a, a plan being confirmed? Sure. One of the things that the, the student committee was able to do was to modify the plan. The plan that was initially proposed in the case would have been a single pot plan. It would have provided absolutely zero dollars to any creditors, and it would not have provided for any sort of a group that could continue to work and get paid, you know, to work for student problems. And what we wanted was a little bit of cash that was available in the estate to pay for a trust that would be overseen by student creditors that could be utilized to at least do administrative work and try to further students' efforts uh, to work with the Department of Education, to work with the state attorneys generals. And so what that trust has done uh, to date is focused, one, on student records. All these student records have been pretty much abandoned now to the student trust. We've had to go around the country and find the student records and uh, uh, bring them together and um, 
bring them to a single location. Um, they're not well organized. They're they're much better organized today, and we hope in the near future. Um, I don't know. Actually, I want to say this publicly, but in the near future, we hope to at least have one uh, time, uh, one point in time, at which we can offer to make available whatever student records we still have uh, that have been organized, so that there is one last chance for uh, for students to get copies of these records. We don't have funding uh, to merely uh, keep these records forever, um, but we have them now, and, and we've done a pretty good job of organizing them and hope to make those available. And that's, you know, it's a lot of work. It's it's a very expensive process um, and very time-consuming process. And it may not sound like much, but to someone that, you know, needs their transcripts or needs their student records, it's it's important. We continue to work um, with uh, the Department of Education. We continue to work more closely with state AGs. We are working with private student loan lenders and the CFPB, um, although I have to say we're not in direct contact with the CFPB today. Um, but what we really want to do is bring together the state AG, the CFPB, and the student trust and come up with a final solution that relates to private student uh, loans, canceling or limiting those obligations for Corinthian students, and then continue to work with the uh, Department of Education to get a final plan in place um, that will uh, essentially cancel as much of the Corinthian student loan debt as possible. So it from these descriptions, it sounds like it's taken a village to get even this far, um, and a lot of different institutions and parties at at work here. Um, Chris, let me get your perspective here about how you saw bankruptcy intersecting with these other mechanisms that were meant to protect students, but somehow, at least up to this point, had, had fallen short. Yeah, no, absolutely. I, I think what's very interesting about the Corinthian situation is that most of the protections in the bankruptcy code are set up to assist students with discharge of student debt. Um, this was not the situation that we were faced with in Corinthian, as Scott was just going through. We're um, confronted with a situation where we were not facing Section 523 of the bankruptcy code that deals with discharge of student debt because the student themselves were filing for bankruptcy. That's the typical situation that when you hear college debt, student loans, and bankruptcy in the same sentence, it deals with students that are filing bankruptcy. That was not the case here, not at all. In Corinthian, these students who incurred this inordinate amount of student debt were faced with this situation where the college itself filed for bankruptcy. And then they were left with having to pay these student loans or having incurred this tremendous amount of debt for a college that no longer existed, was sold to another college, and that in turn diminished the value of their degree and the education they received itself and, and really put them in a lurk. For purposes of the bankruptcy code, though, these students were now, unfortunately, really no different than any other creditor of a bankruptcy estate. That is not something that uh, the bankruptcy code had been um, established to deal with, was a, a student creditor of a, uh, of a debtor. And that is why the student committee was so important, because these students needed a voice in the case, because as Scott just went through, they were the victims of what the California Attorney General 
and said was fraud. So they were saddled with this debt that was at this point in time being investigated by Ed um, on behalf of the Department of Justice. And the students were actually the aggrieved party in this situation. So what the student committee had to do was assist them um, in the bankruptcy, uh, in, in getting their voice heard. And really what their, the biggest thing that their voice could do there was assist Ed and the Department of Justice and the Attorney General with the fraud investigation itself. Um, with respect to actual claims that students held um, where they did intersect with the bankruptcy code, um, most of those claims fell under Section 507A7 of the bankruptcy code. Um, and 507A7 allows for a priority general unsecured claim um, for any individual up to the amount of $1,800 um, for claims arising from the deposit before the commencement of the bankruptcy case of money for, among other things, services to be rendered. So here, there were several students who qualified for a Section 507A7 claim based on prepayment to Corinthian colleges um, on behalf of services to be rendered um, that never were rendered because the colleges were shut down and sold off. So the one thing that the student committee was able to do as part of this plan process was there was money set aside in order to pay these uh, allowed 507 a7 priority claims um, to get paid up to the statutory maximum amount. Um, but one thing that we're doing now on behalf of the student trust is we're reviewing all of the allowed the uh, priority claims that were filed to make sure that only the proper claims are getting filed, but in large part to make sure that that review is done quickly and that these students can get the money that they're entitled to, to get under the bankruptcy code. Um, so from a from a true bankruptcy perspective, that was really the, the intersection between bankruptcy and the students because most of the protections in the bankruptcy code um, are under Section 523 and relate to dischargeability of student debt. And we've seen several cases going all the way up to the Supreme Court dealing with dischargeability of student loans. But that was not the situation that we had here. Um, here, these students were the aggrieved creditors. And unfortunately, um, they were in a position as a creditor not much different than any other creditors of the Chapter 11 case. So let me ask you, Chris, if you could compare some of the governance structures that we see in bankruptcy to protect parties that may have some creditor interest but also play a somewhat different role. So in healthcare bankruptcies, we have a patient ombudsperson sometimes appointed to look out for patient interests. What do you think of the ombuds model versus a, a committee model for these kinds of situations? Yeah, no, absolutely. The, uh, the ombudsman model or the ombudsperson model um, is something that really sets up a monitoring status of the bankruptcy case as opposed to an active status. Uh, Section 333A of the Bankruptcy Code calls for the appointment of this patient care ombudsman if a healthcare business files for bankruptcy and, and there's certain other criteria that are met. Um, then Section 333B allows this patient care ombudsperson to monitor the quality of patient care, um, assure that all confidential records are kept, kept confidential, and then what they do is they report back to the bankruptcy court with respect to their findings. Um, that type of role is drastically different than the role that an official committee serves in the case. The main objective of the ombudsperson is to monitor, and, and they're monitoring a specific subset of information and then reporting back to the court. 
conversely, the official committee in the case, whether it's a student committee, a creditors committee, an equity committee, um, takes an active role in the bankruptcy case. Um, using the Corinthian College's case for an example, the, the student committee's purpose was not just to monitor the Chapter 11 case, but it was to be a zealous advocate for students. And, and that is the role that we played on behalf of the committee was getting the student's voice before the court. Um, we actually had several of the student members of the committee appeared at some of the hearings um, and were introduced to Judge Perry to, to put a face to the student committee. A lot of the times in these bankruptcy cases, the creditors committee is large hedge funds or other creditors that you see all the time in Chapter 11. That was not the case here. These students were were normal people that graduated from high school, went to college, expected to get a college degree and be able to use that degree to enhance their place in life. And unfortunately, given the Corinthian College situation, um, they were prevented from doing that, or at least their, the time frame for doing that was pushed back. So we had to advocate on behalf of these students to the court. And as, as Scott talked about, got provisions in the plan that is gonna help them over time um, you know, hopefully have all of this student loans discharged by Ed as part of the investigation process that's going on. So I, th I think that there is a very important distinction between an ombuds person and a committee in a case because the committee is really an active player in the bankruptcy proceedings and advocates on behalf of his client. Or on the, the flip side, the ombudsman really just monitors and reports back to the court. And I'll, I'll tell you, though, from our experience, I think from, from mine and Chris's experience uh, with the Corinthian case, you know, if if another one of these cases comes up and we see a large uh, institution filing on behalf of the student committee, um, I think one of the lessons we've learned is one of the things we, we probably asked for early in the case is a student ombudsman as well, just to deal with the issue of, of student records and transcripts, because there really is a hole in the law. Uh, with respect to the the maintenance of those uh, records and the and the obligation, and that's a very important um, it's a very important thing for students. I mean, can you imagine if you couldn't get transcripts related to your uh, your former education? You know, it's going to affect you for the rest of your life. Well, as a teacher, I I, I certainly shudder at that. Uh, I I your your points about student records are really quite eye-opening. We tend to think of this as their, their career prospects and their dollars and cents, and this connects very closely with with that. And uh, also, it does it does connect with an ombuds uh, uh, concept of of where where is the paperwork going, and especially if student records contain sensitive information just like health records do. So there's that element as well. So, Scott, can you, can you think of a scenario where you wouldn't a student committee would not be appropriate in an education bankruptcy? No, absolutely not. I think that wherever you have, uh, you know, an edu a large educational institution, the, the student claims are so different from those of your general unsecured trade creditors, you know, people that are providing goods and services to the educational facility. The, the student claims are, are much different. Um, they are a class that, that needs to be represented and needs to be heard. And, and particularly with these student loan issues, not only with respect to the other constituents in the bankruptcy case, but as to the Department of Education, as to Congress and the political uh, people that are working on these issues, I think it's very important that 
the students for each institution have their own voice through a committee if there is a bankruptcy case. Uh, I'll tell you one of the things that, that you know, I learned in this case, there are a lot of entities and organizations out there that are sympathetic to the cause and the plight of students with respect to student loans. But as I said, with the Corinthian students, you need to distance yourself to some extent, even though these are people that are advocating against student loan debt, they're advocating on the on a on a on very different grounds than than what you uh than the grounds that the for example the Corinthian students have. Um so there's political grounds and there's political positions that people can take as against the fairness of student loans as a whole, but you want to have an advocate for the Corinthian students that says, look, uh, you know, we may agree or disagree with respect to the student loan scheme in the United States, but our, our issue is very different. We were promised a product. We were lied to. We were deceived with respect to a product we were buying. So whether or not you believe that student loans are good or bad, that people should repay their student loans, that's a different argument. You know, our issue is as borrowers who were deceived in terms of what they were receiving and what they were buying, uh, should should there be relief with respect to our obligations? And so I think it's very, very necessary that students for every institution have their own committee. Well, yet again, it looks like bankruptcy is a window into much bigger socioeconomic problems in the U.S., uh, and I want to thank Scott Gautier and Chris Ward for joining us today to talk about this issue in this case. Melissa, thank you very much. Thank you. And thank you to ABI Podcast listeners. We will be talking with you again soon.